Good morning, Redeemer. What a privilege and joy to be with you again. I have a longer, longer-ish passage to read from for the reading of the Old Testament and our, and our passage this morning. But it's, it's narrative, it's dramatic and extremely interesting. So I'd like to read the whole thing. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. And he said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. Prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So Esau went to the field to hunt his game and bring it. Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare them delicious from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she placed on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went in to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord, your God, granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And he said, are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate. And he brought him wine and he drank. 
Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone from the presence of Isaac his father, Esau his brother came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who, who are you? He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me even also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you no reserved, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him Lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me even also, O oh, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, And you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob her younger son and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jerry, Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise and go to Padan Aram in the house of Bethuel. 
your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau's mother. The American holiday of Thanksgiving is next week. Many of our guests who are here, we welcome you, will be heading back to Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday by far. All you do is get together with family and eat and be thankful and watch football. That's all. Nobody's messed it up yet. Merchants are trying. Merchants are trying to make it into a shopping weekend. I'm resistant. I'd rather be with the family. Not that families are always that easy. Have you been to a family reunion lately? Now, when you were a kid, family reunions were... Just a lot of fun. Get together, play. But as you get older, families, you come to understand, are complicated. Nothing like a family reunion to bring out everybody's flaws and flat sides. Isaac's whole family is together in Genesis 27. And what a reunion! (laughs) What a family. Can, can you imagine what it would have been like to be one of the extended family at this family reunion? Oh, look, there's, uh, there's Grandpa Isaac. What a blessing he's been. His eyes aren't as good as they used to be, but his mind's still sharp, and you're going to have a harder time fooling him than you think. Oh, and there's great Aunt Rebecca. She was a beauty in her day. Drove the guys crazy. But how did she um, learn all those secrets? It's like she's been listening in on my phone. And Uncle Esau, the life of the party. Hale, ruddy, strong. A man among men. When he's not out hunting, he's got a girl on each arm. He lives for the moment, which makes him a lot of fun. But I wouldn't want to trust him with anything valuable. And then there's Jacob. Old cousin Jacob is still figuring out who he is. It's almost like he doesn't even know his own name. He's sort of a mama's boy, but he's clever and very ambitious. Something tells you to watch your wallet when he smiles at you. (laughs) Don't you love the Bible? Don't you just love the Bible, how real it is? About real people in real places living real life. Now, what's what's odd about this story in Genesis 27 is that there's no obvious good guys here, right? We walk through these four characters and uh, we recognize that their lives are all messed up. 
but there's a lot to learn. And so I want to look at three things for each of the four people in this story, who they were in the context, in their context, and in the context of the Bible. I want to look about uh, who they might be in our pews, our chairs today. Who, who are they in the church today? And what can we learn from them? So let's take a look at Isaac. Who was Isaac in his world? Well, in verse 1, it says that Isaac is old, his eyes are dim. I think that's actually a, a spiritual statement about Isaac as well. He's having a harder and harder time seeing God. He's having a harder and harder time seeing what's important to God. And what is important to God is not Esau's stew. What's important to God is this rescue plan that he started back in Genesis 12 with Father Abraham. Isaac Isaac can't see it. He's a part of it, but he doesn't quite get it. He thinks the world centers around him. So when Isaac says in verse 4 that he will bless for food, he's saying that that basically he's made his last will and testament. He's decided that he's dying and he's going to leave it all to Esau. Notice now he's just doing this with Esau on the sly. Normally, when you would pass over your possessions, you would gather all the family. They would all come together and there would be a blessing. But if Jacob and Rebekah had been there, the gig would have been up. They knew that the birthright had been promised to Jacob by Esau. And God himself had promised that Jacob would be the chosen one. Jacob would rule his brother. But here's Isaac trying to twist the promises of God. He can't do that. It's above his pay grade. But he's trying to change the prophecy of God. Isaac wants to force a different outcome. And you get the idea that Isaac sort of, kind of believes in the promises of God. Isaac, it, it seems, is not finishing well with God. Well, many in our churches today are like Isaac. Isaac was the nominal the nominal believer, a Christian in name only. They always go to church. They always have a story about meeting God. You know, back on the mountaintop by the fire with Dad. There's this little uncomfortable thing about a knife and an altar and stuff, but then we started eating lamb chops. You know, that, that time, that instance, way back in life at camp and... Maybe that's why Isaac had a fondness for wild game. Who knows? But they want God on their own terms, the nominal Christian. Their eyes have grown dim. They have a difficult time in trusting God's promises. They're pragmatic, usually about the promises of God. Well, there's some important lessons about Isaac's bad example uh, a lot of, lot of lessons, actually. But one thing super important. You can't have God on your terms. It's above your pay grade. He is the sovereign Lord. 
It's a very simple concept. He is Lord. You are not. He leads. You follow. And if you don't know that, you won't finish well. doesn't matter how well you start. It's how you finish. It's a long game. You can't coast in the Christian life. I'm pushing 60. I've got 14 months until I'm 60. 14 months. And that will be my real birthday. I'm born February 29th. I only have one birthday every four years, so it's a real birthday. (laughs) So if you really want to count, I'm only going to be 15. But I'm pushing 60. And um, when you get there, you, re- you, you realize you can see the finish line. I've never been able to see the finish line before. You know? Now there's no guarantees in life. I may not be here next week. But if God is gracious and gives me years, I can see the end. It, it, it's in front of me. I know I, know I want to hit there. I want to finish well. I see, though, by being older, how many don't? I was with Jason Thomas the other day. Jason and I were sitting at the dinner table, and somehow our wedding pictures were on the table, and Jason was flipping through them. Leanne and I have been married 35 years now, so he was laughing at the style of dress and our haircuts and the fact that I had hair. <laughs> and uh, he came to the groomsman, the picture of the groomsman, and he said, you keep up with these guys? How are they doing? And, uh, well, you know, it's funny. Um, yeah, John. John Lovett's following Jesus, really pursuing God. And Mike, he died a couple years ago of brain cancer, but died well in God's arms. And Ken here, he, he left his wife a couple years ago, and I, I've lost touch in Steve. Left his wife too, and Bob is selling real estate, and Sam dropped out of seminary, and I don't know what he's doing. And I don't think Jake was ever a Christian, and Ron's very successful, but he pretty quickly left the faith. These were people that I had gone to church with, fellowshiped with, been in small group Bible studies with. Most of them are not finishing well. I know of only one solution for nominalism. Don't rest on past experiences. Radically, completely, totally, without reserve, reject nominal life. Reject it. Throw yourself on God's promises. Risk for Him. Live a life fully for Him. Because God's promises are more real than tomorrow's sunrise. Well, that's Isaac. What about Esau? If the promises of God have grown dim to Isaac, Esau never believed them in the first place. Whereas Isaac is nominal and growing in nominalism, Esau is the unbeliever. He has no time for God. He's about manly pursuits. 
He trusts what he can see and what he can do. So he'd rather have a bowl of stew than some vague promise of God that he would inherit someday in the future. Esau only sees things on the outside, the externals. It's unsurprising that he married so poorly in verse 46. Now, the Bible is pretty hard on Esau. Throughout the scriptures, he becomes synonymous with the cursed one. In the New Testament, he's called unholy in Hebrews chapter 11 because he's the one who despises the gift of God, the thing that God would offer him. Esau doesn't realize what's important in life are not the things that we see. The most important things in our life are the things that we don't see. And it dawns on him too late. That's Esau in context. For today, Esau may be the best representative of the modern secular man or woman. He's busy doing the important work of getting ahead and doing real life, never a thought for God. In his mind, there is the real world of science and facts and data. And then there's this optional sort of spiritual world that's good for people that need crutches. Whereas the nominal Christian always shows up at church, Esau is only there when his wife badgers him so long that he finally comes. Easter or Christmas. Have you ever heard people say, I'm going to have fun and live life on my terms and then later when I get old and I'm done with my fun, I'm going to accept God. Have you heard that? I, I hear that in university all the time. That's Esau talking. And it doesn't work that way. As Dave said last week so clearly, we don't choose God. He chooses us. John 15, Jesus says to the disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. So don't turn away from his promise, his offer when it comes to you. You can't initiate the offer of God. If you reject the birthright, that comes to you from God. If you reject it, you will be given to yourself. You'll be given to your sin. You won't be able to get out. To those of you here who are thinking about faith, many of you have come. Some of you are from secular backgrounds. You, you, you've not thought about these things at all. You've come with a friend. This is new. Some of you come from other faith backgrounds. Listen, we want you to know you are so Welcome here. You've come to the right place. We love talking about these things. But let me explain something about Esau. A couple chapters before this chapter, Esau had come in after hunting and was famished. Jacob, the younger brother, had some stew, offered it in exchange for Esau's birthright. And Esau said... I'm hungry. What's a birthright to me? So he agreed. Esau's appetite became his God. Or as Paul would say later in the book of Philippians, their bellies were their God. In the Bible, Esau's stew 
came to mean the immediate gratification in contrast with waiting for a treasure, the birthright, waiting for delayed gratification that would bring something of immense value. So Esau becomes the image of the foolish man who sells his soul for the baubles and the trinkets of the world. Listen, if you, if you are here and you're not a Christian, you should know that the way of the world is to get you to sell your soul for the trinkets of the world, for stew. And one day, if you reject the offer of God, you will wake up and realize it like Esau. The cry of Esau in verse 38, is there no blessing for me? For me is the cry of the damned. To reject the offer of God when he has realized that there would be no inheritance for him is the cry of the cursed. So we read about in the book of Hebrews. And let me say, this offer is being made to you this morning. The offer that we make in every service is the offer of the gospel. And I beg you, don't throw away the offer. Lots of, lots of deals going down in these passages of Scripture. I want to make a deal with you. Those of you who are thinking through faith, don't throw the offer away. At least, don't throw it away, period. Accept the offer. But if you're tempted to throw it away, don't throw it away until you understand what you are throwing away. Isaac, the nominal. Esau, the unbeliever. And then there's Rebecca, the pretty one. Adventuresome, too. She was willing to travel far from her home to marry Isaac, sight unseen, in Genesis 24. And later, in verse 5, now, in this chapter, we see that she's changed. She's given to sneakiness and manipulation. Rebecca is a believer, I think, but she's gripped with impatience. And her impatience here is to take matters into her own hands. She abuses her maternal authority. She forces her son Jacob to sin against his blind father with this scheme of deception. And what's, what's crazy about her doing that is that the promise has already been given. There's no reason to scheme here. The promise has been given in Genesis 25, 23. So she's scheming and causing her own child to sin for a promise that God has made. Somehow, some way, she believes that God needs her help to move things along. And notice, she cares more for the own, her own ambitions for her children than salvation itself. She says in verse 13, let the curse fall on me. In the Bible, people who take things into their own hands are not always seen in good light. Rebecca's own mother-in-law, Sarah, took things into her own hands. She did not feel like God was coming through on his promises to provide an heir from Isaac, so she allowed Hagar to produce a son with Isaac. Actually produced an entire nation of problems. Moses impatiently struck the rock 
And he was denied entrance into the promised land as the result of his sin. King Saul offered sacrifices rather than waiting for the priest Samuel and had his entire kingdom ripped away from him and given to King David. And Rebecca, the fruit of her sin is horrible. It's as if the curse does fall on her for the rest of her years. When the deception is discovered and Jacob is driven out of the home, Rebecca's life is made miserable by Esau's miserable wives. And sadly, ironically, she dies before Jacob ever comes back. The fruit of her manipulation is that she never sees her son again. Well, who's Rebecca in our pews? Who's Rebecca in the church today? I think Rebecca is the impatient Christian, distressed, impatient believer. She does believe the promises of God. It's in her interest to do so. But for some reason, she's the kind of person who has to take matters into her own hands. She feels trapped by her circumstances. So she's tempted to manipulate and to scheme. She's the one that has so much ambition for her children that she ironically drives them away. There are many of us who, just like Rebecca, sometimes see God as unreliable and too slow for our tastes. Like Rebecca, we think we know better than God. Moms, particularly. I'd like to ask you a question. You know, I was hard on the guys here last month. I'd like to talk to you moms. What are your ambitions for your children? Do you want them to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, as the Bible says? Are you more interested in worldly success? Do you pull your your kids, your children, out of church for their exams? Are you unwilling to accept anything but an A+. What about those they marry? What's more important, a godly person or a successful person? A person who follows hard after God or a person of status? Be careful. You might be the mom that pushes her child to sin. You might be the father who asks his children to embrace the world's values rather than God's. That's what Rebecca did. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Rest, sister. Rest in the promises of God. Trust His timing. Rebecca wasn't wrong about God's promises. She was just impatient. So if you're tempted to think God is not coming through, Trust the Lord. Rest in God. He will care for you. Isaac the nominal, Esau the unbeliever, Rebecca the impatient. What about Jacob? Who is Jacob? In some ways, now Jacob has all of his family in him, mostly his mother, but unlike her, he's not so sure about God either. 
He's the ambitious agnostic. Jacob's father, Isaac, thinks that Jacob should be more like Esau. Son, you need to get out of the house. But we know Jacob's ambitious. He's clever. He'll leave soon enough. Jacob doesn't know who he is. So in verse 19, he lies about his own identity. He doesn't know who God is. So in verse 20, he says to Isaac, his father, the Lord, your God. It's not his God. Jacob even lies about God to justify his lies. Do you see that in verse 20? God gave me success when God had nothing to do with it. Oh, how easy those words slip off our lips. Frankly, Jacob sees God as a way to get what he wants. Jacob uses God to satisfy his own ambitions. So who is Jacob in our pews today? In our chairs? Actually, surprisingly, he does come to church. He's the one who comes to church for other ambitions, though, than to worship God. He comes to make contacts, swing deals, make friends. He's John Fulmer. You know John? Pastor of UCCD. Before he was a believer, John was a rising political star, worked on Capitol Hill in the Senate. He was a great lawyer, top lawyer from the law school, Duke Law School. He was out for a job. He saw a sign, church, Capitol Hill, Baptist Church. He thought, I'll show up Sunday, make some contacts, network a little. I bet there's some people there that are interested in politics. He shows up. Mark Dever starts meeting with him for Bible study. And there John discovered the amazing truth. Jesus Christ saves sinners. I'm so grateful for what's happened in John's life. Many show up. Many agnostics walk through those doors. But not all come to faith like John did. So what do we learn from Jacob? You know, I don't know if you had this feeling as you were studying this passage in your small groups this week, but didn't you have that funny feeling of how could God use liars and deceivers like these people, especially like Jacob, to be one of the great patriarchs? Did you, did you have that feeling? But then again, there's many who lie about God. And there's even more who lie to themselves about themselves. God wants us to know who we truly are, even if it's not pretty. He wants you to see yourself for who you are. You cannot follow God until you understand the depth of your sin. Now, of course, God's not done with Jacob here in, verse, in chapter 27. There's more to the story. God meets Jacob Decades later, after Jacob has been conned, deceived by a better deceiver than him, Uncle Laban, he shows back up. He meets God at Jabbok, the river. Dave's going to preach about this in Genesis 32 later. But he begins to wrestle with God. And during that time, Jacob demands to be blessed. I will not let you go until you bless me, 
he says. It's the same desire he had back when he was a kid with his father Isaac. He wanted the blessing from God. And do you know what the question was that came to Jacob from God? It was the same question Isaac asked. What is your name? What's your name? God doesn't need to know Jacob's name. God knows who he is, right? He wants to make sure that Jacob knows his name. Do you know your name? Do you know your name? And because God needs to know your name, he wants to know if you see the truth about yourself, that you are fallen, broken, and separated from God. And without Christ, you are without hope before a holy God. Well, what do, what do we do with this passage? Um, how do we give it a gospel perspective? Now, this, the central point of the passage is that God is sovereign and his purposes are going to be accomplished no matter what. So God has made promises to his people and those promises are sure and they will come to fruition. There's no way to change that. It doesn't matter what you do or don't do. God's plans are bigger than us. Plans are bigger than what we see. And the sad fact is that the people in this chapter act like they can ignore God's plans, they can twist God's plans, they can thwart them, they can change them to their own ends. And the same is true today. Nothing has changed. We should recognize the four of them in us. We're the same people. We act as if we have the power to change the promises of God like Isaac. We pretend that the promises of God aren't true like Esau. We fight to make God's promises true in the way they think we think they should be like Rebecca. Or we use God's promises to satisfy our own ambitions like Jacob. Now the good news is that God is the same God today as he was then in the days of Isaac. He's still using sinners to accomplish his purposes. And that means he can use you and me. I've already told you I want to finish well. And um, I'm planning on meeting Isaac and Jacob. And I've been talking about them sort of nasty. So for the record, I want to put a gospel perspective on Isaac and Jacob. Isaac died many years later after this deception Uh, Actually, he wasn't as sick as he thought. (laughs) Maybe he was a hypochondriac. Oh, there I go talking bad about him again. But anyhow, uh, years, decades later, he dies. Both of his sons were with him. They were reconciled. The Bible says he was full of years. There are 129 references to Isaac in the scriptures, all positive. He's held in high regard in both the Old and New Testaments. The God of Abraham and Isaac is almost God's name. It's repeated so often. God continually remembers his covenant with Isaac and Jacob in the book of the law and the the Psalms, the prophets. And in the New Testament, Jesus speaks of Isaac and Jacob as still living. Stephen recounts the promises of God to Isaac and Jacob in the book of Acts just as he's martyred. Paul calls believers children of the promise. 
just like Isaac in Romans 9, 8. And in the book of Hebrews, it speaks both of Isaac and Jacob as men of faith. Jacob is even a bigger character than Isaac, bigger than his father. He made good. Most of the rest of the book of Genesis has to do in some ways with Jacob. There are 361 references to Jacob in the Bible. Remember, it's not how we start, it's how we end. And Jacob ends well. There's great hope in Isaac and Jacob. They were chosen. They were accepted by God. Not because of the good things they'd done, but because they were forgiven men who knew the promises of God by faith. And aren't we glad for that? It gives us hope that a God so loving, so forgiving would forgive us, that he would love us and call us children of the promise. You see, that's the offer. That's the offer, the birthright that comes to all of us, the offer of rich forgiveness that's found only by faith in Christ. So today you have a choice, and it's about family. There's going to be this family reunion in John 14, 18, Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He will adopt us. A family reunion that's a family of faith and I want you there. Every one of you. But to get there, you have to make a choice in life to be an orphan or the adopted child of God. That's the choice. Orphans live for themselves. They, um, they're in charge. They're like Isaac the nominal. They're like Esau the unbeliever. They're like Rebecca the impatient or Jacob the lion agnostic. They live to make their own way through life. Don't live like orphans. Be a part of the family of God. Let me tell you, how to be a true part of the family of God. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12, the scriptures say, Jesus is given the right to make us children of God, to be a part of this family. That right came to him because he gave his life as a ransom for sinners, for you and me. We had no hope apart from that. There was no rescue plan of God that would have worked. So that the actual work of Christ... What he did was to take our sins on himself on the cross so that we might be reunited with the living God. He became the offering to God for us. You know when Rebecca said, let the curse fall on me? You know she says that, let the curse fall on me? She's not good enough. She couldn't offer herself as a sacrifice. There's only one worthy enough on whom the curse can fall. That's Jesus, the king. He lived a perfect life so that he could become the perfect sacrifice so that we don't have to be perfect to enter into God's fellowship. All that's left for us is to turn from the sin of unbelief, turn from the sin of nominalism, turn from the sin of agnosticism, turn from the sin of impatience and put your complete faith and trust in Jesus. Listen, by now, surely you see in this passage alone how 
God does not need us to claw our way back into his favor. Look at the patriarchs and their sin. No, what's needed to join the family of God is to turn from unbelief, put your faith in Christ, his work on the cross, totally, unreservedly, trust him as Savior and Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we see Isaac the nominal in us. Lord, we recognize we tend to have dim eyes, growing dim eyes. Flame us with love for you, O God. Lord, some of us have seen very much Esau, the unbeliever in our own lives. Lord, we shuddered to think where we were going. We pray for the gift of faith. Father, we think of Rebecca and her impatience. Oh God, we pray that we would rest in you. And Father, we see Jacob, the lion agnostic. We recognize your work continued in him and thank you for that. Father, thank you that he now becomes the representation of what we could be as well. Sinners, liars, who've repented and come in full faith to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.